This is an ABC podcast. Well, exit stage left, Dame Edna Everidge, she of that immaculate lilac bouffant, lavish horn-rimmed spectacles, just enough sequins and diamantes and, of course, that wicked sense of humour. After decades of international fame and acclaim, the Dame and her creator, Barry Humphreys, gave their final farewell this week in a Sydney hospital. He was 89. As he once described it, Barry has now arrived at the Celestial Box Office. Hello, I'm Natasha Mitchell, and today on Big Ideas, a chance to hear the late Barry Humphreys on stage with a cast of other cabaret greats, all totally different in style, but all who like Barry have made it on the world stage. We're winding back the clock and taking you to the Adelaide Cabaret Festival in 2015, which Barry was artistic director of that year, and he's joined by the Queen of Kamikaze Cabaret, Meow Meow, stand-up comedian Adam Hills, who's host of Spicks and Specs and The Last Leg, and the late Frank Ford, who was pivotal to the founding of the Adelaide Fringe and founder of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. Dame Edna Everidge was debuted by Barry back in 1955 when he was around 21. It's incredible to think of how she endured as a character for over 70 years. In 1959, Barry climbed aboard a steamer headed for London and it took him a while to find his audience in the UK. And here he is remembering his early days in London in the audience of the famous Metropolitan Theatre. I noticed some of the ladies had brought... uh things to do. They were knitting during the show. (laughs) Everyone was smoking. Everyone was smoking or drinking alcohol. And some women were shelling peas. (laughs) There was a woman next to me with a, what's it called, a colander? And she was shelling peas. And they'd sing along. They'd know the show. (laughs) Classic. Cabaret is loved for its intimacy, interactivity, sharp satire. It was popularised back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Think Moulin Rouge in Paris, where Edith Piaf used to sing, or the Cabaret of the Weimar Republic in Berlin, starring the work of Brecht. In Australia, the Adelaide Cabaret Festival has been at the forefront of the revival of cabaret here. And broadcaster and journalist Paul Barclay, former Big Ideas host, chaired this discussion with Barry Humphreys and guests at the festival, exploring the history of cabaret and why it continues to excite new audiences today. And Paul started by asking Barry how he defines cabaret. Well, I've never been sure really what it is. It belongs in a place about the size of this room we're having our radio chat in. It really is a more intimate form of theatre. It's slightly out of place in the hall we were in last night, don't you think? Yes, it, it, it is mainly. You want that intimacy, don't you, with the relationship with the audience? Yes. That they bounce, you bounce off them and uh, they participate and feel part of the experience. I, I think and, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Adam, you've done a lot of it, haven't you? I've, I've done a lot of... I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've always found it best in intimate spaces. Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about here? <laughs> when you can bounce off other people. Bouncing off people. Uh, there's something to be said for it, isn't there? You don't need a theatre to bounce off someone. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting you say that. Even in, as far as stand-up comedy goes, certainly in England, where I spend a lot of time now, a lot of people are playing 10,000-seat arenas. Yeah. doing. Oh, okay. 
doing oh. stand-up comedy. And I don't think I don't think I would like to do that. I think, I think it's called greed, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I well, mean, there are ten thousand seaters, but how many people are sitting there? Well, often well, ten thousand. And the weird thing is, I've spoken to people who have been to some of these shows, and in order to do a ten thousand seat arena, you have to have an enormous screen on stage behind you. So at least I would say seven thousand of those ten thousand are just watching television. No, They're watching yeah. you on yes. a screen. Yeah. Yes. And, and then, I mean, I, I, the last time I toured England, I played a, uh, what was one of the largest venues I'd ever played in Birmingham, which was 900 seats. My God. And people afterwards were saying, it's so good to see someone in an intimate setting like that. <laughs> so that I, said, though, you know, I'm very happy in a stadium, obviously. And, and none of, the, you know, the stage is not the stage, as far as I'm concerned. The whole space is roamable. Yes. So I think you can make people terrified, even in a stadium. I think and, you succeeded um, in terrifying thank you. I take some that people as a... last night. In fact, the last I saw you, you were riding on the back of a man that you dragged up from the audience. It would have been rude not to, I think. Oh, yes. He seemed to be enjoying it. He did. Um, your, your cabaret is very up close and personal, isn't yes, it? Yes, as I say, even in a stadium. Liza Minnelli at Royal Festival Hall mm. in London, that was intimate. And that's a 2,000-seater. For me, if someone grab, really grabs the text and really has the music and brings you in, I still think that's cabaret. Yeah. I think so too. And, yeah. and of course, mm. acting is pretending to be someone else and convincing an audience sometimes that they are somewhere else. Yeah. Yes. Mm. They're sitting down next to you. You can, can create this illusion of intimacy in a large auditorium, but... It's a struggle sometimes. Yes. It's also you're talking, the, the performer tells you something about themselves. Don't they you're mm. really quite to expose your inner thoughts and what your beliefs are? And I think that creates that intimacy with yes. the audience. And but, you know, performer. Stephen Colbert, you know, he's an American satirist. I think his thing on the telly is, for me, almost the closest thing to the spirit of real cabaret that I've ever seen on the television. It's political, it's really twisted and funny. You've seen him, Barry? Yes. I and think, I, to I, me, he's the spirit of Weimar. I think that he is a true cabaret artist. Yeah, right. I look at that, I think that's what I want to see on a cabaret stage. I want that degree of braininess and it's, it's all within the, the guise of a character, but you still feel you know what his brain's doing. Mm. Well, I think, yes, I think some of the best cabaret does have a political bite to it, doesn't it? Whether it's of the left or the right. Generally speaking, fashionably, it's of the left. <laughs> but it can be, of course, from any political point of view. Yes. Mm. Uh, and, and critical. Mm. I think it's its its, it's best. But, of course, sometimes it's merely decorative, amusing and entertaining. And it can be all those things as well. I favour always the monologue. Uh, I mean, I started off before the term stand-up was ever invented. Mm. I considered myself a sit-down comedian, really. <laughs> Even when I was sitting down, I was standing up, I suppose. <laughs> I used to deliver a lot of my Edna stuff in a chair. It was only much later that the chair was removed. I don't think we could afford to rent it any longer. <laughs> and I would be fine if I was standing and then prowling, I think. We like to sort of pace the stage. And thinking aloud is the illusion we want to create, don't we? Mm. That we're, that's all coming to us for the first time and you're hearing our direct thoughts about all sorts of subjects. It's a lot of fun. I think if we're not enjoying it, of course, 
they don't enjoy. Yeah. It's got to be the sense of play with the audience. Is that play? You're playing with them. Yes, you're and playing. that's the ent- yeah. advantage, I suppose, mm. cabaret, because mm. your question, which I deftly avoided answering, <laughs> if you remember rightly, <laughs> what is it? It's sort of theatre with no particular rules mm. and no dress code. People just wear T-shirts and thongs to the opera, don't they? I mean, More's the pity, actually. Yes, because it makes a really noisy slapping sound when they walk out. <laughs> I liked people to dress up a bit when they come to the show. Yes. If I could afford it, I would enforce a dress code on yes. them. But yes. we on All the or nothing. stage don't have to have a dress code, do we, Adam? <laughs> I mean, a lot of stand-up comedians come on in rags, don't they? Was and a... then when they go into the dressing room afterwards, they get into three-piece suits. <laughs> yeah. True. There was, a, there was a tendency in stand-up comedy to try and look like you weren't trying too hard. I think yes. that was the dressing down stage of it. Mm. Um, yes. But then I, I noticed, once I started hosting Spicks and Specs on the ABC, I noticed my audiences were better dressed <laughs> because they were an ABC audience. <laughs> so I would walk out on stage in my T-shirt and jeans and look at the crowd and go, oh, I'm the only one that hasn't made an effort here yes, tonight. Yes, but you were working for the ABC so you couldn't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> You mean you weren't given a wardrobe allowance for the ABC? <laughs> oh, goodness, no. <laughs> I should point out to our listeners, of course, that we're doing this for nothing, aren't we? True. There's, yeah, one, there's a cup of coffee between us. Tremendous kindness in their hearts. The Frank, love of the cabaret. And the love of the cabaret. Frank, you started this festival off 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. How was cabaret understood back then? Or misunderstood? Or misunderstood. It was a great problem then to... Uh, when we announced we were going to do a cabaret festival, people weren't quite sure what that meant because people had memories of, uh, oh, yes, I've been to a cabaret night. The football club has one every year. <laughs> the guys get dressed up in tutus and fall about, and it's all very funny. You know. <coughs> Nothing's uh, changed then. <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard getting the message across of uh, what we wanted, what type of cabaret we wanted to have. Mm. But, you know, as soon as that went across, we had full houses... Right from the beginning, the first year, somehow it had touched what people wanted. They wanted something more intimate, as we were saying, intimate in the sense that, again, that was sense of it, the play, that they were part of the show, as you do feel, mm. I think, in a, mm. in, a, in a cabaret audience. And also, they wanted this variety. They wanted a more informal type of theatre experience. And mm. I think that's what you get in, in cabaret, like sitting at tables like this and having a drink and all the mm. rest of it, I think. So... Um, very quickly, they, they were, and they were very adventurous. Mm. I mean, we threw everything at them. I said, the only way a cabaret festival is going to work is to have all types of cabaret. So you go from performance art to da-da to um, political, social, satire, uh, review-type things, up to schmaltzy sort of uh, Las Vegas big stars, you know. Mm. And I think that's why one of the reasons it's been successful, I think. And short shows. And you didn't have to have an expensive dinner to go and see it either. And the festival's been responsible for a revival in cabaret in Australia in the last decade or so. Well, it's interesting how other states have come, you know, Melbourne's got one now, Brisbane, Mm -hmm. even Ballarat and Mm. Auckland. Mm. Uh, So it's been quite interesting how it has... uh, Given a lot of work to our wonderful artists. Are you sure about Auckland? <laughs> I think so, yes. You know, I started off in small theatres and sometimes, too, looking through a hole in the curtain to see if there were enough people in the audience to do the show. I had those experiences. Is the house big enough to do it? Will the audience come? And then I moved into slightly bigger theatres 
and I considered a theatre that seated 450 people, very large indeed. And then sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, a friend of mine whose advice I respected said, you know you're playing in these theatres in Sydney and in Melbourne, he said, you're missing the audience. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're just getting middle-class audiences. He said, the real audiences are in the clubs, which are hugely attended, which are rich, which pay performers a lot of money, and the audiences there were better educated in theatre than the respectable people who went along to see a Terence Radical revival, or me. <laughs> Those clubs could afford to have Sinatra and Eartha Kitt and, right. and uh, Shirley Bassey, and the audiences knew good stuff when they heard it and saw it. So I did a club act. I was very, very nervous, but I... That was really my first experience of a kind of cabaret where you're looking down, as we are in this little broadcast situation, at people sitting at tables. But in the case of the St. George's Leagues Club in South Sydney, they're drinking, smoking, and if they don't like you, they're turning their back and operating those uh, machines, those gambling <laughs> machines, you know, and, and they make it very clear that they don't think you're very funny. And the only way I managed to do that, to overcome my fear, was to pretend that I wasn't really the booked act. <laughs> I, I, got some, I got someone to come on and say, I'm terribly sorry, but, you know, uh, Cher isn't... Uh, she's, she's very ill, she's got food poisoning on Qantas, and she's... Uh, <laughs> and she can't come. But luckily, a Melbourne housewife who happens to be visiting Sydney who's offered to step in. Her own experience before was playing the role of Mary Magdalene in a church play. And that way I got on, and then I had to invent the club secretary, the man who apologised. So I invented a man called Les Patterson, who was very drunk. And he came on and announced that he was the entertainment officer for the club. And uh, he'd had a few drinks, but uh, he said, uh, unfortunately, and he apologised for the... And then introduced Edna. But the thing is, they believed he really was the club secretary. <laughs> because apparently he was much more sober than the real club. And that way I overcame my fear, because, as you know, we have plenty of that. We have more fear and more stage fright than you or any of the people attending or listening because it's our job. Mm. Is that right? It's our livelihood. Yeah. So it's more scary. Sorry, so in yeah, a way, no. the cabaret sensibilities and the traditions of cabaret clashed for you with the harsh Australian audience. And in order to win them over, you came up with something almost bulletproof. I did, luckily. And it worked. And funnily enough, that character remains in my, if I can call it a repertoire, it does. It does. The late Barry Humphreys on Winning Over Audiences, on Big Ideas, on ABCRN. Barry is on a panel at the 2015 Adelaide Cabaret Festival, which he was artistic director of at the time. With host Paul Barclay, he's joined by comedian Adam Hills, cabaret star Meow Meow, and the late Frank Ford, the creator of the Cabaret Festival. But there are different traditions, aren't there, Miao Miao? I mean, there's the French tradition of cabaret, which is rather different from the German one. 
I think in that very early cabaret, there's, it's really literary cabaret, isn't it? And poets, you know, actually probably dreadful performers, but still sort of pounding out their poems at a, you know, trapped audience. Yes. Uh, much more frisson, I think, more joy and more sex, perhaps, in the original French cabarets than, than in Germany when you're at the, you know, between the wars and there's a lot more devastation than a sort of a collision, I think, of desperation and hope, I always say, in that Weimar period dancing on the edge of the volcano. But that early French period, I don't know, I've just been showing Barry backstage a beautiful poster that I've just found from 1896, and it's of an angel from the Cabaret of Heaven in Montmartre, and there was a Cabaret of Heaven, a Cabaret of Hell, and a Cabaret of Nothingness. And this beautiful image of an angel, you know, beautifully breasted, a little bit of hair under the arms, sprinkled with stars, (laughs) she's exquisite. And it's sort of... It says everything about that period, I think. It's art and poetry, romanticism and poverty. Poverty and a bit of sex. Yeah. Mm. There's a joyousness in that, though, and a pride, I think, of the street. If you think of La Goulou, the early, you know, can-can dancer and all of those artists sort of really on the outskirts of Paris at the time, meeting and hurling poetry and ideas at each other. It's different from a couple of decades later in... in, uh, you know, the German tradition when you're really deconstructing language and bodies and sex in a much more, I don't want to say vicious way. Is that right, Barry, yes, would you it, say? Of course, cabaret is a French word. Yes. Isn't it? Cabaret, uh, the, the room. The Germans adopted it and pronounced it as cabaret. Cabaret. It's about a small room. And in England, I suppose, it was really the music hall. Yes. Which sprang from pub entertainment. And the old music halls were part of pubs. You'd have drinks in bar and then you'd move into a little theatre. When I first came to London, I went to the Metropolitan Theatre in the Edgware Road, which was a great music hall, in the old style. The audience were ancient. <laughs> but you could go upstairs, up, 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 and there was a bar and you could have a pint of Guinness, lean on a brass rail, and look way down at the show. And these entertainers who had been doing the same act since the 1920s would come on and the numbers appeared on the side of the stage. That's where we get the term for my next number. The next number is going to be so-and-so and And it would be a man who comes on and does an ancient sketch about golfing. (laughs) And that guy would be doing that same act all his life and finding new ways of or not, <laughs> of doing it and keeping it funny and keeping yeah. himself interested and, and, and in, in work. That was a very intimate form of theatre in a mm. way because I noticed some of the ladies had brought uh, things to do. They were knitting during the show. <laughs> everyone was smoking, everyone was smoking or drinking alcohol and some women were shelling peas. <laughs> there was a woman next to me with a with what's it called, a colander? And she was shelling pee. And they'd sing along. They'd know the show. And they would sing along. And in Australia, because I was really brought up in the age of radio, or the wireless, and there would be programs of community singing. Can you imagine that now? They were recorded in small auditoriums in radio stations in Melbourne and Sydney. And people would come along and there would be a, 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 perhaps a comic or some 
figure with a theatrical background would introduce them all and say, now let's sing, and there'd be a piano, and they would all sing, I'm looking over a four-leaf clover. <laughs> or others, bye-bye blackbird. Generally, they were the songs of a previous generation, and everyone listened to community singing. It would be inconceivable today, wouldn't it? Can you imagine them all sitting there singing Radiohead? <laughs> That's about as current as I can get. <laughs> or, or, or singing, in your case, uh, Advance Australia Fair to the tune of Working Class Man whilst simultaneously impersonating Jimmy Barnes. It doesn't get much more cabaret than that, Adam. Well, do you know what's interesting is I've been doing that for quite a while, much, much like the man doing the golfing sketch. Yes, yes. <laughs> I've been finding new ways to do that. And uh, I realised last night that there is a big difference between the cabaret audience in Adelaide and the stand-up audience, because I, I was living in Adelaide when I came up with that number, and I've performed it a lot. I've been doing it a lot on TV, in, on stand-up stages, but I noticed when I did it last night, normally when I do it in stand-up, there's a murmur of recognition in the audience of, oh, yes, we've seen him do this bit, and vague disappointment. Um, <laughs> there was still there was a silence of acute disappointment when you were walking on the stage. <laughs> but when I started to introduce it last night, I, I could see the audience going, thinking, I could feel them thinking, oh, we've, how is this going to work? We've never seen this done before. And so when I did actually manage to meld the words of Advanced Australia Fair to the tune of Working Class Man by Jimmy Barnes, oh, it, it made me realise that the, the cabaret audience is completely different to the, to the stand-up audience. And we're talking in Adelaide, it's not, you know, I've lived here for years, this is not the biggest of towns, you know. I, in fact, when I do stand-up, uh, I've done this often overseas where if I'm doing a stand-up show and I meet someone from Adelaide in the audience, uh, I'll play a game I call Two Degrees of Separation which is we work out who we both know in common. <laughs> it, is, it never fails. <laughs> it, and often if there are two people, I've done it before where there have been two people from Adelaide in an audience who don't know each other, and I'll go, right, this may take me ten minutes, but I'm going to find out who you both know. <laughs> there will always be someone that they both know. Wow. And yet the, the stand-up audience, and which I'm assuming is kind of like a fringe audience, and the cabaret audience to me seem to be different. There seems to be a separation between the two. That's a great act of Adams. I think it's brilliant, actually. But I wonder, have you ever tried that in England? Yes. You have? Yes. Successfully? Yeah, uh, with, with Adelaide people. Yes. Yeah, so there might, um, there might be, I don't know, say 500 people in the audience, and there happen to be two people, both from Adelaide, in that audience in England. Uh, I think the last time it happened was in Wales. And I said, right, let's find out who you both know in common. And we, we whittled it down, and eventually I went, right, where did you work? Where do you, what do you do? No, that's not it. What school did you go to? What school did you go to? And then one, one of them groaned when the other one said their school. And I said, why did you groan? And he went, my brother went to that school. <laughs> and I said, what's your brother's name? And he said his brother's name. And the other person went, oh, my God. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Never, only with Adelaide though, with no other city does Melbourne it work. Melbourne doesn't work. No, Melbourne doesn't work. Melbourne's too big, I'm, people I'm don't so know each other. sorry, Melbourne doesn't work. <laughs> Maybe Adelaide's just very friendly. <laughs> you just, you can't have an affair in Adelaide. <laughs> oh my darling, you haven't lived. <laughs> uh, Meow, you have said everything in theatre depends on the possibility of failure. That you, have I? You have. <laughs> that you like to feel on a precipice yes. when, you're on, when you're on the stage. Talk, yes. talk to that a bit for us, why that excites you. And perhaps 
you could refer back to that that notion of fear that we, you were talking about before, that uh, even the most seasoned performers still have that sense of fear when they walk onto the stage. Well, I think it's part of the cabaret form which I love, which is you're not stuck in a narrative of a play. I mean, I do love mm. a play, but when you have the freedom within cabaret to have many ecstatic journeys within each song or, or monologue or whatever it is, you're not restrained by you know, a narrative arc. Most of my shows do actually have a subliminal arc. But I think that sense of terror of the audience not knowing, it shouldn't be uncomfortable. Mm. It should just be thrilling. And so if you sort of know you're going to get a plot, there's no fear in there. But the beauty of cabaret is that you can respond to what's happened in the day. You can change the order of things. You can look at the audience and think, no, I'm skipping to the next number, or I'm going back, or let's really go there and play the Adelaide game, or whatever mm. it is. That freedom, I think, really is the beauty of the form that lets you be ridiculous and dangerous, because anything really could happen. There's a beautiful British director, um, he's Australian actually, David Freeman, who always said, you know, isn't it sad that we sit in a cinema and we feel more involved with what's happening in a film than we do when we go to the theatre, mm. where in fact we're in a room with all live people mm. and anything could happen there. But it's sort of tragic that we go into a show and think, oh, I know what's going to happen and I feel very safe. So I guess that's part of the reason why I, you know, stage dive and crowd surf are ridiculous as it is. And not in every show, but it's part of that fleshiness that I love that's so important to me because I think there's this subliminal death of theatre in a lot of big musicals and a lot of plays where everyone doesn't quite know why they're not quite satisfied. They've paid lots of money, they feel obliged to feel they've had a good night out, but it's not truly, you know, unless you're shredding your vocal cords or, or your heart or something, there's also just skill. You don't have to kill yourself on stage every night, but I, <laughs> but I don't feel really quite good unless I'm a bit bruised in some way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever seen um, Meow Mao's show, there's, there's one <laughs> marvellous point where she does body surfing across the audience and uh, at the same time singing a rather passionate French song, Je ne quitte me pas, and saying, I'll hold up my leg, and she goes on the leg. <laughs> Multitasking. I would, go back to, I would describe that experience as voluptuous panic <laughs> that you create in the audience. Thank you, Frank, that's lovely. Well, I think that's right. I mean, you go to cabaret and you realise the point of being in the audience and you realise that it's not just to sit there and passively observe something that's happening on the stage, that you are, in fact, a part of, of the performance, perhaps even if you feel slightly uncomfortable about the performance and your sort of role in it? Well, ideally, actually, a song will bring the audience to you and, and you're out to them. Ideally, you don't need to physically touch anyone. You know, ideally, it would all be in the text and the, and the music. But while audiences are still a bit shockable, it's hard not to prowl yes. out there. Yes. But, you know, the concerts that Barry and I did with the Australian Chamber Orchestra of, of um, Lost and Found Weimar Music... Yes. I mean, the power of those songs and that orchestra and that music, were really beautiful program. Mm. Just to stand there on stage together singing the Benares song, you know, it's, it's about a magical place and let's go, let's escape, and, and it's sort of impending doom the more the song goes on. And you feel it, of course, with the resonance mm. of, um, you know, exile and the Second World War. 
this desperate thing of there's, there's no whiskey, there's no telephone, there's no people, there's no joy in this planet. Let's go to this magical place. It's all in the song. So you don't need to do more than give it, really. Well, you see, this too is music and art that were created before a great cataclysm, before the world really changed yeah. radically, before, in a sense, Western culture died uh, with the Second World War. It is, as you say, in the music, but it's also created in this historical context of menace and loss. Yes. We now live in a very safe place, don't we, in Australia. And it's very hard to evoke that kind of mood in the things that we do in the theatre. As far as the audience is concerned, I always like the audience to feel very much in danger and in threat. <laughs> I'd like them to be scared to death. <laughs> but after a while, that's what they like, you know. Mm. And they complain that it wasn't scary enough, <laughs> that Les Patterson didn't spit enough. <laughs> on the front row. <laughs> there, there was a girl sitting in the middle of the front row not that long ago, right in the middle of the front row, leaning back and calling out, saying, spit on me, Les. <laughs> 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 that is intimate theatre at, <laughs> at its most intense. So what do we criticise? What is the critical edge in our work now? Mm. We can do music and performances mm. relating to another time. We can evoke mm. that other time if we're skilled. But what do we do now, do you think, Adam? I wonder if maybe Adelaide is the perfect place for a cabaret festival and the revival of cabaret generally because... I'm looking around the room, <laughs> go with me. It is quite a safe place. Mm. Adelaide is a lovely place to well, live. Well, Snowtown, I believe. <laughs> 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 and their cabaret festival is amazing. <laughs> Barry keeps on rolling out the barrel. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> or Hindley Street at 3am. Not that safe. I know what you mean, though. But generally, lifestyle-wise... City of churches, all that. It is, yeah, exactly, the city of churches. So I wonder if, if maybe this is... The cabaret, cabaret in Adelaide is almost a little tiny rebellion against that safe lifestyle. This is our way of rebelling against being one of the most, probably really, the most livable city in Australia and the safest and the quietest and the loveliest. But once a year, for a few weeks, <laughs> we can get out and we can see a nipple tassel. <laughs> but, you know, maybe that's why... I mean, in, in, what's interesting is in England, the cabaret scene is not anywhere near as healthy as it is in Australia no, right now. Maybe variety. And New York's the same. Really New great. York, their clubs are closing all the time. And mm. it's, it's a very sort of schmaltzy, the great American songbook. You know, yeah. they, they all sing those same old songs again. Uh, yes. Where here we've got a tremendous variety in the fringe. There this is a year, downtown scene. There was 120 cabaret shows in our fringe here. Right. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Mm. Which, considering that is only a few months ago, yeah. if, you can, if you can sustain that many shows during a fringe and then a few months later have a cabaret festival as well. And a cabaret fringe, we have a cabaret fringe now. There's 50 shows in the cabaret fringe, it's going on at the same time in all the back rooms and Highbury Street. And yes, yes. You, know, you would love it. <laughs> 
That question, though, of the social and political critique that's at the core of cabaret and that mm. uh, existed particularly during the wars and how we continue to inject that into contemporary cabaret. I mean, there are, there is much politics and there is much to, yes. to satire today yes. and, and, and to have edge. I mean, Adam, you, you took on the issue of the, the dreadful Charlie Hebdo killings on your television show in the UK, I understand, and was that, you were actually writing, is that right? On yes. Your, on the last leg on your TV, on yeah. your TV show? Yeah, we, we I do a TV show, TV show in London and we're live to air on a Friday night, so it's 10 o'clock at night. So the Charlie Hebdo attacks took place, I think, on a Tuesday perhaps, maybe yeah. Wednesday, Wednesday it was, because we were in the office writing the show and I was looking online and going, oh, something's gone down in Paris. So we knew we had to talk about it. Uh, especially because it was an attack on cartoonists, an, an attack on comedy. So we had prepared things to say about it that, that were light but were not irreverent because you can't, you know, I mean, we were irreverent towards the idiots that decided they wanted to shoot cartoonists, mm. but we had nothing, you know. But then on the Friday, we went into rehearsal as the hostages were all taken and as the shootouts took place. And so we were changing the script even after rehearsal. We basically rehearsed. Mm. And then we went back to the dressing room and then watched TV and went, OK, well, that bit makes no sense now because it's yeah. all unfolded. So we were changing the script right up until the last minute. And what was interesting for me was when the show went to air in London, we got a lot of... Uh, we had virtually no critique, no criticisms. People said it was great that you actually talked about what was going on. Mm -hmm. When it went to air in Australia, which was six days later, a lot of criticism. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because... On the night, people were going, this is really horrific, we need someone to make sense of it. And then five days later, it just felt like we were just taking cheap shots at something that happened a week ago. Right. And that's just because the show can't, you know, it Gosh. takes six days to make it here. But it is, I think it is important. I think that's, that's what certainly comedy can do, is take something that people are scared of. It does either thing. It scares people who are in a safe environment, like Adelaide. Do you know, you come out and you feel a little bit scared. Or it takes something that is scary and has gone on and tries to lighten it a little bit. Well, I think that that is definitely the best kind of artistry. I, early on, worked for a review company in Sydney called the Phillips Street Theatre. Wonderful, That was in the mid-1950s. Oh, wonderful, yes. And although they used a lot of material from British reviews, in fact, some of the actors uh, did the, their performances in... Cockney accents, mm. or mm. posh British accents, <laughs> we still didn't, we were still cringing. There was nothing very Australian about it. Right. If ever there was a reference, however, to something that was local and current, the temperature of the audience completely changed. Mm. There was astonishment. And I think, ideally, the audience should hear in the evening what we feel about something that's happened that day. There's something that is in that morning's paper. It's very puzzling, though, for audiences. They think, how, how is it that it's happened to us and now it's in the theatre? It's a strange transition for people to accept and digest and understand. But it's what we really like to do, isn't it? Well, did you, you notice know like what happens if you make a reference to something that is so unbelievably current? Yes. The audience think, what's... The audience are in a quicksand. 
Monday. Mm. Even last night I noticed when um, Rosa the Beautician made a joke about Jay Weatherall, yes. mm. Premier, the audience instantly That's right. were scared. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That, that whole performance was rather on a tightrope. <laughs> this is the celebrity bikini waxer who was uh, revealing rather too much about the bodily hair of Australian politicians. <laughs> uh, Jay Weatherall and Julia Gillard included. Um, you can imagine, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> The immediacy and currency of a fabulous cabaret, hey? Big Ideas this week celebrates the life of performer Barry Humphreys, who died this week. This is a conversation recorded in 2015. He's with fellow cabaret artists, comedian Adam Hills, Meow Meow and festival creator Frank Ford. Cabaret in Berlin, between the wars, became an important expression of social and political criticism. But does this Weimar tradition of cabaret remain relevant today? Meow Meow. There's a Brecht Eisler song about invading countries in three days. Yep. It's absolutely relevant. You know, our leaders gave us orders, so we invaded Poland. Our leaders gave us orders, so we invaded Paris. And now they've given us orders to invade the moon, to yep. conquer the moon. Yep. Those songs, sadly, are, they're not history pieces. They're disgustingly real. Yes, yes. Ian Grandage, the beautiful Australian composer, we wrote a song together a couple of years ago and we were performing it in London earlier in the year. I'd written it after September 11, but it was very strange to be singing it on stage and talking about numbers, figures falling from the sky. It's an apocalyptic song, but it was right after the Malaysian Airlines oh, right. disaster. Yeah. And in my mind, it's about something else. And as I'm singing the lyrics, I think, oh, this is sort of grotesque because it feels like I'm referencing what's just happened. But it reminded me of, you know, there are universal dreadful situations. And that's why those songs keep going, because there still needs to be a healing balm mm. or a, you know, there were, there were cabarets in the concentration camps, performers all the way through who kept singing because it was necessary. Music as well as political agitation is a balm and something to hang on to. And uh, I think that's why, you know, I love some of the songs I love from that old period are just ridiculous frou-frou songs. They're just click-clack, click-clack, click. they're fun things to do with your mouth. How many times have I said that? <laughs> but, you know, the ones that keep lasting, it's because they're still, you know, I don't see them as history pieces. They remind us of our dreadful history. Maybe they're warning pieces, I don't know. Well, I found a moment last night when I was doing the anthem to, you know, Working Class Man, that just before I got to the line, for those who've come across the seas, we've boundless planes to share. I hadn't planned to do it, but just as I got to that moment, I went, I said out loud, and this next line's for Tony Abbott. Mm. And again, it made something that I've been doing for 15 years yeah. suddenly, suddenly became gets, really current. Yeah. And, and I, I did the same thing. I, as I sang it, went, oh, oh, this actually makes sense now. Yeah, right. Okay, good. I'm not just trotting out the same old shtick I've been doing for 15 years. Even like a torch song like Zurabaya Johnny, I think I've seen that done a million times. It's a brilliant song. It's every person's different story. And I've sung it for years and years, and it changes every time I sing it. You know, the, the, the text and the music are so brilliantly combined that you've got a million heartbreaks within that one song. And I think that's um, it's very special. You don't need a three-hour play to do it. You've got that little nugget. We've always had a, a tradition in Australia of social satire, or political satire, which I think has been tremendously mm -hmm. healthy, and I think it's a, 
a real hallmark of the great democracy we have. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's, it'd be murdered in a lot of other countries getting up there and yeah. saying what you do, like Brian Dawes. Oh, John Clark is wonderful, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. But it comes from our tradition, I think, of the, uh, the music hall, the British yes. music hall, uh, the university reviews. Now, you, you and I did our university reviews, and all of us did here. That was a great thing of social satire of the time, of the moment, mm. wasn't it? It were much more current than the commercial reviews. Yes, mm. yes, and, and it were hard-hitting too, and naughty. naughty Very naughty. naughty. naughty yes. And the funniest was always the architecture review. Yes. <laughs> well, Sue Ingleton came out, so many of those Melbourne comedians came out mm. of the architecture mm. review, didn't they? Yes. Barry, the other night I was... Um, Someone said, you must have a look at this uh, French TV cabaret program. And you'll be interested in this because those traditions you thought were dead are still alive in France. And there's a program called Plus Grand Cabaret du Monde, the biggest cabaret in the world. It has an audience of a million listeners, or viewers, I should say. And they do it twice a month. And this is a whole collection of magic, and they're sitting in an audience like this with tables, they've got a wonderful big set and a little stage uh, in the studio. They have all these uh, magicians, one after the other, <laughs> ventriloquists, dog acts. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, my God, you know, <laughs> all those, we, we, used to, we used to call them novelty acts, didn't yes, we, or yes. variety mm -hmm. acts, you know, but they label as the biggest cabaret festival in the world, on their television, and it's one of these dreadful acts after another, and the audience <laughs> loving it. So that tradition in France hasn't died off, you know, because if you go to um, Le Moulin Rouge in Paris, across the Marquis you'll see the oldest cabaret in the world, and uh, apart from all those wonderful tall statuesque semi-nude girls, you'll have acts like a ventriloquist thrown in there, yes. and their, their pièce de résistance is a great big glass tank uh, full of water, an anaconda, and a semi-nude semi girl swimming around. And that's their... <laughs> that's a cabaret act. That's very 1899. I love it. We should have had that in Adelaide. Oh, I know. <laughs> but I used to like to go... In, did you go, go to the Alcazar in Paris in the old Oh, days? yes, yes. And the Paris du Latin. Naughty. And there you see very naughty, very funny, satirical acts interspersed with total nudity. A tableau vivant. Yes, not so vivant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was an extremely piquant theatrical yes. experience. Yes. And very good. Yes. Very salutary. Mm. There's a place in Shanghai that used to exist called the Great World. Great World, it was called. And it was closed when I went there. I managed to get my way in. But the thing that was remaining was a sign over the top saying, in English, proficient cabaret <laughs> and I liked that very much I thought, it doesn't I, raise the bar too high no it? it's just practical it does what it needs to um, you're illuminated you're excited you're enthralled very tightly done and you're out I liked it proficient cabaret we have such good subjects don't we in Australia <laughs> particularly the philistinism of politicians mm. oh, you yes. know, that, that our Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was able to describe Bill Henson's photographs as dis disgusting without having seen them. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's room for more political commentary in, in cabaret in Australia? Yes, there yes, is a lot yes. more room, yeah. particularly if it's rather mm. sort of even-handed. I think a lot of comedians feel that they are, you know, if, mm. if they're the object of their satire uh, right-wing, uh, right then mm. they're on the right track. But of course, 
Both sides are as hilarious and stupid as the other. <laughs> I've never been much interested in politics, but I do like good political satire. And uh, we, we, we've got a wonderful opportunity. Do you ever go to the Wharf Review, of course? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. In yeah, Sydney, yeah. every year, yeah. a troupe of magnificent mm. actors perform a totally <laughs> topical and wonderfully written and hilarious show. And uh, they're working on it all the year round, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, Phil, uh, Phil Scott. Phil Scott. Phil Scott. Jonathan yeah. Biggins. Brilliant. Brilliant. And he's here this year. Don't miss him, Lockie. He's, mm. He composes these wonderful satirical songs that rips the guts out of politicians' ears. And we've had the Wharf Review here a couple of times. Yes. Uh, and, uh, but but uh, Phil Scott is one of our favourites and a wonderful man, wonderful entertainer. Yes, I think. <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I wrote the proposal for the... Uh, Cabaret Festival. I went around lobbing the politicians like, to give money for the put it on, uh -huh. And I went to this mm -hmm. one minister and he said, oh yes, it's very interesting. And this, this is Cabaret. And, I was, and they said, political satire. I said, yes. He said, I don't think uh, that'll go down well with the politicians. If you want to get money, I'd, I would uh, leave that one out. So <laughs> I immediately rewrote and put down social satire. <laughs> if you want money, say it's a sport. Ah, yes. <laughs> yes, I heard your ingenious idea, Barry, of getting more funding for the theatre yes. in Adelaide and indeed for uh, renovating uh, the Her Majesty's Theatre, yes. which was to call theatre a sport. I yes, say it's a sport. They won't mm. know because they don't go to the theatre anyway. <laughs> Julia Gillard was proud of not going to the theatre. Actually expressed a certain really? superiority because she'd never been to an opera, never been to a play. Well... And she's from Adelaide, I can't... Oh, it's amazing. Not really from Adelaide, you know. <laughs> <laughs> she paid ten pounds to come to Adelaide. <laughs> While we're talking about politics, you will have all noticed the uh, Australia Council has been defunded, 100 million dollars. The money has been taken away from our federal arts body and handed yes. over personally to, to give them this Brandis, coat the arts as well. Minister. Mm. I don't know whether anybody feels like they would like to comment on the wisdom or otherwise of that decision. Adam, um, you've been away out of the country for a while, but you would have heard... I heard, sorry, excuse me, I heard a very disturbing thing in that the, a lot of the money is being taken away from smaller arts yes. foundations and that the larger arts foundations are being discouraged from talking out about this so that some of the larger arts bodies are still being funded, but I think they all got together to prepare a brief that they were going to release saying, this is ridiculous, how can we, you know, this is, we, we should be funding all the arts, not just us, and uh, they were very quietly told it would be better if you don't release that brief. So, so no one will protest this. No one in Australia will speak out about this because the people who are losing the money, the smaller people, uh, they don't have a voice, and the people who do have a voice are still being paid, so and they're being paid quite nicely not to say anything about it. Mm. So I think it's a crying shame that, you know, arts, arts needs to be funded. You need to... Who funds you, Adam? Well, no one has ever funded me. Yeah. Uh, as doing stand-up comedy, I've always... There's, I there's like never to been think any... that the public will fund me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Do you think there should be more arts funding, or do you think...? I'm not sure about this. Mm. Uh, I think certain things like, of course, a very expensive uh, and yet hugely popular entertainments like the opera, uh, ballet and, and the symphony orchestra need, definitely need strong government support as they do in Europe. But I don't know about individual, I don't mean to, do we really need a lot of 
heavily funded comedians, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Might they just think it's not even necessary to be funny anymore because I'm going to get my money anyway, you know? I think... There, there definitely needs to be... <laughs> Why be funny? I'll get paid, you know? <laughs> it could lead to a certain de- terrible apathy. Be so- Soviet comedy, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be Soviet comedy. I think the notion, though, of, of you know, the arts being integral to civilization is what's really, you know, however money is distributed, that's what seems to be always needing to be justified, and that's exhausting. I like when you're in Vienna, you can have a fight with a cab driver about the new director of the, the state theatre, because everyone has a vested interest for tourism and various points, but everybody knows who the new director is, it's political. That sort of thing where it's, you're not justifying the necessity of music in people's lives or, or mm. comedy or it's just a given that it's healthy. And that's a debate that we seem to keep coming back to in Australia where you're sort of saying, oh, no, no, it's very good for people to have, you know, uh, a comedy or a tragic outlet. You know, mm. it, that seems to be... I mean, with the Bill Henson thing, that's a perfect example. You know, how many people would have seen those beautiful photographs anyway? And to sort of take it and make it a, an uneducated debate. Well, Mr Rudd may have regretted what he said, but it was too late, you know, it was out. One of the great things about being comedians is, of course, we don't have to have anything to do with the arts at all. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to have been any artistic association. <laughs> but, but I think it's crucial for our creative artists, our writers, composers, choreographers, to be subsidised, to develop their work. You know, on new plays, too, you can't expect to go along and pay a full price, I think, to see a new play. They should be subsidised and helped, and otherwise we'll never develop our own creative artists, I think, mm-hmm. and it's really, really important. Um, but the other point about the Brandis thing is he's going to have complete discretion over this $120 million oh. he's taken out, and I, I, I can see him becoming perhaps like Stalin and lecturing Shostakovich on how he should compose. And what are thing. his credentials, Mr. Brothers? <laughs> what are his credentials anyway, this guy? He's a, Just a big-time politician. Big, boring <laughs> politician. <laughs> how do you judge, Barry, the state of cultural literacy in Australia now compared to when you started your career? Have we become more sophisticated culturally, more, more open to... Well, I like Australia forms. because it hardly ever changes. <laughs> I, I think little things change, but generally speaking, our philistinism is healthy. <laughs> you know, after all, sports used to be on the back page and now it's on every page, isn't it? <laughs> the only composer of international reputation, Peter Sculthorpe, dies and someone comes to Mr Abbott and says, should he have a state funeral? The Prime Minister who had given a state, offered a state funeral to a sports broadcaster. And he said, who's Peter Scalthorpe? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's rather nice that these things stay the same <laughs> in Australia. And uh, I think, I suppose, we have become a bit more sophisticated. Uh, it, it, you will have noticed, Adam, that everyone wants to be a stand-up comedian these days. Mm. You can have university courses in it. You can go to a technical college and learn to be a comedian. And what kind of comedian would they be? Proficient. 
<laughs> that is a good point. When I started doing stand-up, which was 1989, uh, it was in Sydney, and stand-up was not considered a viable career option. No. You did it for the love of it. Yes. Uh, you certainly didn't do it for the money. When we, we would go to an open mic night and there were ten spots where basically anyone could get up and just do five minutes. Mm. Mm. And often they didn't have enough people to fill the ten spots. Mm. So they'd say, could you do an extra minute or two? Now, if you want to go to the Sydney Comedy Store and perform in the open mic mm. night, there's a three-month waiting list to get on that. Is that so? That yeah. is Surely there's someone you can sleep with? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 had, I met some people... And they said, oh, we're very pleased with our son. I said, what's he doing? They said, well, he's still rather young. He's only 14, but he wants to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> yeah. He wants, that's his ambition. Mm. And like in the same way that people say, well, I'm going to write a book now. You know, I'm going to write mm. a novel. You never hear anyone saying they're going to write a string quartet. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. Isn't that strange? And I think part of because the fact... it's difficult. <laughs> in, in order to make it in Australia, and I think you're right, with the Philistinism, you have to be good. You have to... You have to really, as like you did with the leagues clubs, you have to win over those people out there because they've got poker machines at the back, they've got beer, they're quite happy to turn their backs on you. The Sydney Comedy Store, when I started out, every weekend there'd be at least two or three bucks nights and possibly a hen's night. And as a stand-up, you had to go out and win them over. And then years later, I ended up in Edinburgh for the festival and there's a show there called Late and Live, which is one o'clock in the morning, 600 people. It's billed as the comedy abattoir where comedians (laughs) go to be slaughtered. And there was one particular night where the audience were horrific. Russell Brand had had a, a beer glass thrown at him. Fiona O'Loughlin walked on stage because she was backstage with me when the glass shattered on the wall. She walked out and pulled a shard of glass out of her leg. The Umbilical Brothers turned up, Australian comedians, who I started out with in the Sydney Comedy Store, and they said, what's the audience like? And I said, well, one person's been booed off stage, someone's had a glass thrown at them, and Fiona's pulled glass out of her leg. <laughs> and both of them went, so pretty much like the Sydney Comedy Store when we started out. <laughs> And I went, yeah, pretty much. But you see, you go on there, you have to be better than alcohol. (laughs) 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 I've taken up more than enough time for these wonderful performers and uh, all of them have been up late. They've got plenty of more work ahead of them. I'll wrap it up. But I do want to thank particularly Barry Humphreys, Frank Ford, Adam Hills and Meow Meow for giving us their time this afternoon. Thank you. Thanks. Hilarious. Wonderful discussion starring cabaret performer Meow Meow, the late founder of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival, Frank Ford, comedian Adam Hills, who's host of Spicks and Specks and The Last Leg on ABC TV, and the late Barry Humphreys, who died this week after 70 extraordinary years of performances. Vale. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Follow Big Ideas on the ABC Listen app and tell your friends about the podcast. I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.